All right, this is part two on our study of the book of Revelation, answering some of your questions. And uh, we uh, didn't get much into the scripture last week, so we're going to do that this time. I have here before me a passage, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. That is God's word to the church of Philadelphia, which Bible scholars agree is representation of the Bible-believing era that we are, are in now that will exist up until the rapture of the church. Now, he, notice the wording here. He said, I will keep them, keep thee from the hour of temptation. Not keep them through it, but keep them from it. In other words, they will not go through the hour of temptation, which will come up on all the world to try all of them. That hour of temptation is this seven years of tribulation, which is going to end in fiery judgment at the second coming of Christ. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13 is probably the highlight of the verses that speak of the rapture of the church. So I'm going to turn to that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. He said, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. If you look up the word asleep, you'll find that that's the word the Bible uses for Christians who have uh, died. Uh, Jesus spoke of Lazarus as asleep, and they said if he sleeps he does well, and Jesus said plainly, Lazarus is dead. So that's a term used for Christians. Their bodies are sleeping in the grave while their souls are present with him. He said, verse 15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that they which are alive remain in the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, that means go before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall send them heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. That word caught up in the Latin is the word rapture. That's where we get the word rapture. Shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we evermore be with the Lord. So what we have here is a description of not Christ coming back on a white horse to judge the dead. It's not him coming back on a white horse to bring judgment on the great tribulation. That's not the story here. It's not him coming back in wrath and vengeance. This is not the day of the Lord that he's described. This is a, a, an event that just happens quickly in the twinkling of an eye, like a bolt of lightning. Christ comes back and no one sees him except the dead in Christ who rise from the grave. The graves open up, receive them up. The living are caught up with him to meet him in the air. So that's the rapture of the church. Now this passage is so different for instance, from Matthew chapter 24, or some of the other passages that speak of the second coming, or of the book of Revelation, where it describes the second coming in chapters uh, 8, uh, and in chapters uh, 16, and chapter 19, he describes the second coming of Christ, and uh, speaks of Him coming in power and glory, and the nations of the earth gathering together against the Lord and against His anointed to battle Him, and the fiery sword coming out of His mouth and slaying the nations, and the blood being as deep as a horse's bridle. You notice in the painting here, the blood as deep as a horse's bridle. So that, that event of the second coming, depicted elsewhere in the Scripture, 
cannot be this rapture that you see, this caught up that you see here in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now let's look at a second passage beginning in chapter 5, verse 1, continuing. For of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know that the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. So following the rapture is the day of the Lord. Now if you go back in the Old Testament, look up day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, Joel said, is a day of thick clouds, gloominess, blackness. He, said, he speaks of it as a horrible time. The whole book of Joel speaks of this awful day of the Lord, God's day of judgment, which culminates in His judgment of the nations of the earth and slaying them in the valley of Megiddo, the battle of Armageddon. That's the, the whole period is day of the Lord, representing these last three and a half years of this Jacob's troubles, this great tribulation. So he says, the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. And that's where uh, a term that's been popularized, the thief in the night. I think it was a movie uh, called that. He'll come as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Notice the difference between the rapture and the day of the Lord. In the rapture, the saints are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. It's a wonderful and a glorious event. In this one, the Lord comes back to a group of people who are saying, oh, we're at peace and safety now. And he says, no sudden destruction will come upon them. As travail upon a woman with a child, and they shall not escape. But ye brethren, now he's speaking to the Christians, now are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. In other words, the believers won't experience that day when Christ comes back suddenly, unexpectedly, like a thief who leaves behind destruction and ruin. Ye are the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. And then he says down in verse uh, 9, he says, For God has not appointed us to wrath. In other words, Christians won't be around to experience this wrath that will take place. The, the whole great tribulation, particularly the last three and a half years of this seven-year period, the whole great tribulation is a time of great wrath. God is punishing the nations. For instance, you have here the sun and the moon being darkened. Star called wormwood falls and destroys life and fish and things in the sea. One-third of the green grass and the trees are all burned up. Locusts come out of the ground and uh, with the stingers in their tails and uh, sting and torment men. And uh, then we have a, a, a final battle where the blood runs as deep as a horse's bridle. The sun made seven times hotter and men curse God. Sores are on them. They curse Him for the sores uh, that He's placed upon them. And uh, then we finally have this battle where the nations are slain and wiped out. I mean, that's a terrible time of wrath that God's pouring out. Hunger, we read about hunger and death and hell, men having their heads cut off who don't conform, who don't receive the mark of the beast, the Antichrist who will come and give out his number and reign over the earth. This is a time of judgment, a time that is, the Bible said, worse than any time that's ever been on the face of the earth. That means it's going to be worse than the Holocaust. It's going to be worse than the First World War when the men lay in the trenches suffering. It's going to be worse than when Jerusalem was besieged in 70 AD and some of the people, some of the women cooked and ate their own babies when they died. This is going to be a horrible time period. He said the saints won't experience this. He will keep them from that hour of temptation. So if we rightly divide the word, we find that there's two different aspects to, this, to the, the second coming. One of them is going to be the rapture of the saints 
and the other one is going to be the second coming, which will occur at the end of the tribulation. Now, let's read a little bit further here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, uh, uh, for, for God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Uh, okay, wherefore comfort ye one another uh, with these words. So we'll stop there on that and uh, take up with another passage. We'll go to Revelation next time. If you would like to ask a Bible question, email us at biblequestions at nogreaterjoy.org or call at 931-805-4820. This is our third week uh, discussing the subject of the rapture of the church, which is the uh, Latin caught up there in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, when the theology was, was uh, articulated, Latin was the primary language. And so when they spoke of the rapture, they were speaking uh, scriptural words caught up. All right, we're in uh, Revelation chapter 4 this time and uh, discussing the rapture of the church. I'm going to read it here. Uh, what Notice in the sequence of events, this is important. I told you that the overview tells us more about the rapture than even the individual verses. In the book of Revelation, we have chapters 1, 2, and 3, which deal with the seven churches of Revelation. We have that here on our chart. The seven churches, a message is given to each one of them, the church of Philadelphia is told that it will be saved from the hour of temptation, which will come up on the earth to try all those that dwell upon the face of the earth. So uh, the seven golden candlestick represents the seven churches. And they have seven stars in his right hand, which are the angels of the seven churches. The point I'm making is that the first three chapters of the book of Revelation is about the church, detail about the church. In chapter 4, verse 1, we're reading here now, he says, And this I beheld, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, saying, Come up hither, and I'll show thee the things that must be hereafter. Now, John is taken up into heaven at that point, stands before God and the angels, and he observes all of this taking place. He sees it as one would who took a trip into the future, got in a time machine, went into the future, and saw these things taking place. So he describes them just as he saw them. For instance, he said he saw, it, as it were, a mountain burning with fire cast into the sea. He didn't know what this object was. He just described what it looked like. It was something as big as a mountain. It was burning, and it fell into the sea, and it polluted and destroyed one-third of the life in the sea, which I think there is the Mediterranean Sea. Now, starting in Revelation chapter 4, the church is never seen on the earth again during all of this seven years. That's very important. That's, that's a key argument for pre-tribulational rapture. The church is not involved at any time, anywhere in all of this. The, amazing detail in the book of Revelation, and no mention of the church. No mention uh, at all, except 
where we're reading right now, the church is in heaven. In other words, before the tribulation takes place, the church is in heaven, represented by the 24 elders here. And uh, you will see that as we read the text. Revelation chapter 4, verse 2 now. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, there was a throne set in heaven, and uh, one sat on the throne. And uh, he that sat on was like to look unto jasper stone. Beautiful picture of Christ here. Verse 4, And around about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. We find in the book of Corinthians and other places that the church has promised crowns uh, as we overcome. Five different crowns are promised in the Bible to overcoming Christians. So here we find 24 elders. These would be those representing the church sitting closest to the throne of God. You say, how do you know they're the church? Because as you read on down, you find them rejoicing that they've been redeemed. Uh, let's, uh, let's read further down. 5 verse 9, and it says, uh, and they sung a new song. Now, let, let's get verse 8 first. And when they had taken the book, the beast and the four and twenty elders found, fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. So here are these four and twenty elders around the throne, and they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals. For thou, for thou wast slain, uh, for thou wert to open the seals, for thou hast... Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation, and, and hath made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Now that's a great passage of Scripture. What do we have? We have around the throne 24 elders. Now that's just 24 saying that they were redeemed to God by His blood out of every tongue, kindred, and nation. So they must be representing more than 24 people because 24 people couldn't cover every tongue, kindred, and nation. There's thousands of languages upon the earth, and over the period of history there's been hundreds and hundreds of nations. So they're representative. And then he says that there was a great number in heaven began to praise God and worship Him. He continues in verse 11, And I beheld a voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beast and the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. What a magnificent scene. So these 24 elders speaking on behalf of thousands and ten thousands around the throne are saying, You redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred, tongue, and nation. Now, what we have here are these 24 elders and the thousands upon thousands praising God in heaven before any of the tribulation takes place, before any of the judgments fall, because the, the subject at hand is a book. That book is, and you see right here, the seven-sealed book. That book is the God's blueprint for the judgment that's going to come up on the earth. This is the day of the Lord revealed in this seven-sealed book. The book has not yet been opened. The judgments have not yet been executed. And yet all of the saints are in heaven rejoicing around the throne, having been redeemed. Now, 
You see, that's a much more powerful argument for a pre-tribulational rapture than a single verse of Scripture. Just as we pointed out in our first lesson, whenever Christ came the first time to die, there were passages of Scripture that intimated that the Messiah would suffer, He would die. Uh, it says in Psalm 22, they brought Him to the dust of death. Uh, it speaks of Him uh, being resurrected even. The book of Jonah gives us a type of Christ going into the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. But there was not a single passage of Scripture that just said, okay, you Jewish believers, whenever the Messiah comes, you're going to crucify Him. He's going to be buried and rise again the third day, and the church is going to be founded. There's no such passage of Scripture. Nor is there a passage of Scripture that says that, first of all, Christ is going to rapture the church out, and then there'll be a seven-year period of tribulation, at which time the Christians will be in the heavens. At the end of the seven years, Christ will come back, judge the heathen of the earth. There'll be a 1,000-year reign that'll follow it. The earth will be destroyed. There'll be a new heavens and new earth. The Scriptures never make such an attempt. So neither the pre-trib, the post-trib, the mid-trib, nor the partial rapture or split rapture or pre-wrath, none of those positions have a clear single passage of Scripture that tell you how it's going to take place. But I think this is the most powerful argument you can have, is that the saints are in heaven before the tribulation takes place. That's clear. All right, we'll deal more the next time. If you would like to ask a Bible question, email us at biblequestions at nogreaterjoy.org or call at 931-805-4820. Let's get back. This is our fourth lesson on the rapture. What, what does the Bible say about the rapture? What scriptures do we have that support the idea of a pre-tribulational rapture? We've been talking about that. Now let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this time. And uh, we're, we're just hitting the high spots here. There's, we could take, uh, take many, many hours if we wanted to cover this in detail. But uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he speaks of the rapture and the uh, second coming in a very clear way. Now, let's uh, start down in verse um, 40, uh, let's see, let's uh, 48, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's start uh, 49. He says, For as we born the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. For this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Basically what he said here is that no one gets into the kingdom of God, gets into heaven with their natural bodies, that natural bodies don't go to heaven. It takes a special kind of body. Behold, I show you a mystery. Now here's the, going to be the rapture. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that's this, <laughs> That's how long it's going to take for the rapture to take place. It's going to be sudden, unexpected, like in the days of Noah. They'll be eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, and knew not till the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. It'll be a very quick thing. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, 
Now, the reason he says last trump is uh, Jewish feast days, holy days, uh, Sabbaths were inaugurated by the blowing of a trumpet, not just one blast, but several blasts, seven blasts. And uh, it was the last blast that uh, was the point at which the time was established for the feast day or the holy day. So the last trump would be a series of blasts, and at the point of the last one, uh, that's when it will all take place. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now this is similar to our First Thessalonians passage. You have the dead being raised first, and then we which are alive are caught up. So we go back to our chart here. The Paul said that those of us who are alive will not prevent, as in go before, those which are asleep. So my daddy's in the grave here. My mama was placed in the grave about three weeks ago. So she's now there. And uh, my stepfather is in the grave. And uh, my mother-in-law is in the grave. So all of them are waiting there. Their bodies in the grave. While their spirits are present with the Lord, their bodies are waiting in the grave. So what will happen is the grave will open first. And those which are dead in Christ will rise as their spirits have joined their bodies and come up in the air. Now, he said, then after they are caught up, those of us which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. If you were standing beside the grave of your saved loved one when the rapture takes place, you might hear a trumpet and then another trumpet and look around to see what was making the noise. And then about that time, the last trump sounds. And when it does, right in front of you, the grave opens up. The dirt is thrown back. The lid of the casket's blown off. And grandma comes out. She won't have that old crippled old body she used to have. She'll have a glorified young body. She'll come out and maybe catch your eye as she's going up. You'll see the bottom of her bare feet as she sends up into the heavens. And then you're propelled off the ground, rocket jet fired right off the ground. And you're caught up and you join grandma. And then you look around and you see that the heavens are sprinkled with the saints rising like snow off the ground, rising in white robes to meet Christ in the air. And crowds of millions meet him in the air and are taken to be in his presence. And that will be followed then by the manifestation of Antichrist and the coming of the great tribulation preceding the thousand year return of Christ to the earth and setting up of his kingdom. Back to the text again. Here in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trump for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, not capable of corrupting, and we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So that which can rot will put on that which cannot rot, and that which can die will put on that which cannot die. So then when this corruption shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Uh, <laughs> Victory takes a big bite of death, and death goes down in its gullet, and death is no more. O death, he's celebrating here. This is poetry. This is a song. 
Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brethren, be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So that is a beautiful picture of the rapture of the church being taken out, getting our glorified bodies. You notice there's no antichrist in this. There's no uh, great suffering. There's no judgments. Uh, none of that. This is strictly the taking of the saints out of the earth to the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, and it's a different event from the second coming, which will take place seven years later. If you would like to ask a Bible question, email us at biblequestions at nogreaterjoy.org or call at 931-805-4820. for our fifth lesson on the rapture of the church. And we've been looking at passages talking about the rapture. Now, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Turn your Bibles with me. All right. I don't know about you, but I've gotten to where my eyes are so poor. Kind of hard to work one hand. I've gotten to where my eyes are so poor, I can't see my old Bible anymore, so I have written the scripture out very large, size 14 font, so I can see it. Uh, if I don't have a passage pretty well memorized, I can't read that out of my Bible. All right, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, he says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. That's a pretty important passage uh, on the side for other issues, like when Jesus said that the uh, he came, he's coming quickly. Uh, 2,000 years doesn't seem quickly to us, but uh, when 1,000 years is equal to one day, that's pretty quick for him. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. In other words, some people think that it's been 2,000 years. Where is he? But is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God has allowed this period of time for men to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now remember we talked about the day of the Lord in the book of Joel in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord is this three and a half year ending on this seven year tribulation period, this three and a half years of great tribulation. This is the day of the Lord. This is when the judgments fall and, and uh, the wrath of God is poured out on the nations, ending in the second coming and the destruction of the armies of the earth in the valley of Megiddo. So back to our text. He says, For the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements, it looked like John knew something about the all matter being composed of elements, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, their earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now that's quite a contrast from the passages in 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians that we read about the rapture of the church, His glorious coming back. This speaks of 
the elements melting with a fervent heat, which we know won't happen until after the millennium, a thousand years later. There's no attempt here to give us a chronology on this. But he speaks of, let's read further. The elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and all the works that are therein shall be burned up. So we see here the painting with the earth being burnt up. So he is, he's going all the way from the second coming through the millennium down to the destruction of the earth where there's going to be a new heavens and new earth created. No attempt to be chronological. Now, many people who debate over when the rapture will take place, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, these different positions, most all of them obviously believe that there's going to be a thousand year reign of Christ upon the earth. And according to this passage, you wouldn't know it. He skips right over that thousand years and mixes the second coming and the destruction of the earth, mixes the day of the Lord with the destruction of the earth itself. So uh, we find that quite often takes place in the preaching of the word of God. He says, uh, melt with a fervent heat and, the, and all shall be burned up, seeing that all these things shall be dissolved. In other words, the, the very structure, the very atomic structure be dissolved. What manner of person ought you to be in all holy conversation, godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of the Lord. This is a day of gloominess, darkness, Joel said, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved. The heavens, that's your sun and moon and Mars and Venus and Neptune. Uh, the stars will be dissolved. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And in the book of Revelation, he speaks of that new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. If you go to Isaiah chapter 64 and chapter 65, he also speaks of this new heavens and new earth. In fact, it's almost like reading the book of Revelation, reading Isaiah 64 and 65. And in this new earth in Revelation chapter 21, the new Jerusalem descends down and sits upon the new earth once the old earth is destroyed. We had a question in church last Sunday. Someone asked, uh, if the old earth was going to be recreated like in Noah's flood when it was uh, re-inhabited. No, this present earth will be burned up. The elements will melt. And it says there in Revelation, there'll be no place found for it. And he says, I create a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. So we look for a new heavens, a new earth. So I'll give you that passage to show you the contrast between the Bible speaking of the second coming and speaking of the rapture. Now, Revelation 19, 11. And I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. So this is Revelation 19. This is a picture of Christ coming back on his white horse. White horse. You say, do you really believe he's going to come back on a white horse? Absolutely. I believe Jesus is a horse rider. I believe, <laughs> I believe in heaven he's got a stable and a big white stallion that he rides. You say, well, God wouldn't have to ride a stallion. No, but uh, if you were a spirit, wouldn't you enjoy riding a stallion? If you had a, uh, wouldn't you enjoy taking on bodily form and getting on the horse back of a, a good stallion, taking a ride across the meadow? Well, God does too. And when Jesus Christ comes back, he's not going to be riding on a donkey like he did the first time. He's going to be coming back in power and great glory as a conqueror riding on a white horse. He will face the armies of the world riding on a white horse. Uh, that's the side. 
Uh, let's see, where were we here? All right, back to our passage. He said, His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Now, this is not his garment. This vesture dipped in blood that he's clothed with, he dipped it in the blood of his enemies down here. Vesture dipped in blood. Uh, and his name is called the Word of God, Jesus. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, clean and white. The Bible tells that fine linen, clean white, is the righteousness of the saints. So when Christ comes back at the second coming, he's got the saints with him riding on horses. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. So we find a ruling of the nations following this second coming. And he treadeth the winepress of, of the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. And that's what I've drawn here in my picture is the winepress. You, you see the grapes with the human faces on them the blood dripping from them, about to be tread. And that's where it says that the blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridle there in the valley of Megiddo. And you say, do you believe that's literal? Of course I believe it's literal. I believe that at the second coming of Christ, the nations of the earth will be gathered together in the valley of Megiddo. And when Christ comes back and the laser beam comes out of his mouth and he just slices the armies of the earth in half, that their blood will run out to the point that when the horse runs down into the bottom of the valley and goes into the draw to cross, that as it steps into the blood, the blood will splash up and cover the horse's bridle. I believe there'll be blood running two, three feet deep there in the valley of Megiddo where the armies all over those mountains have been slain almost instantly by the word of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, this is a horrible picture of the second coming, and yet it's a glorious picture for those of us that know him. And finally, he says, And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and it's the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. So that's not the rapture, because this is about fierceness. It's about wrath. He comes right to the earth. He's seen. In the rapture, he's not seen by the earth. He's taken out. So another very strong passage for pre-tribulational rapture. If you would like to ask a Bible question, email us at biblequestions at nogreaterjoy.org or call at 931-805-4820. Pearl, and I'm back here to answer your Bible questions. We're in the art studio today. I've cleared all my paints off, and as you can see, I got a little cast on here. I broke my wrist. I, I became a Calvinist. I lost my free will, and gravity took over and drove me into the ground at a high rate of speed from off a of scaffolding where I was working on my house. So I'm all bandaged up here in one arm today, but I can still turn the Bible pages with one hand. So we're going to be having a series on answering questions that you've been asking about the book of Revelation, about the second coming, about the rapture, 
tribulation, some of those issues. So we're going to go into some of the scripture and see if we can't give you some answers. If, if you're not satisfied with what we're saying, then uh, please uh, notify us and we will uh, be glad to try to answer any ad additional issues that you have. Now, Jared's here in the studio and he's going to read the first question that we got and we're going to try to give you an answer. Is the rapture of the church before, during, or at the end of the tribulation period? No question about it. The rapture is before the tribulation. Now, I was looking online at what some of the uh, different writers have to say about the rapture and the tribulation. And of course, there are a lot of different positions that are held today. You have the uh, pre-wrath rapture, which uh, Rosenthal came up with a while back. And then you have the post-tribulational. You have the mid-tribulational. You have the split rapture. And uh, then you have no rapture at all. You have just the second coming where Christ comes back and the saints and the sinners are separated and divided and all go to their proper places. And uh, you have the pre-millennial, and then you have the post-millennial, all-millennial, uh, no-millennial. Uh, and then you have the, um, the well, there's, there's any number of different positions that are held on that subject. Now, I've been challenged. Give me one verse that teaches that the church will be raptured before the tribulation. Let me put it another way. Give me one verse that teaches the church will be raptured in the middle of the tribulation, pre-wrath, after the tribulation. Give me one verse that teaches that there will be a premillennial return of Christ or a postmillennial return of Christ. As you well know, all of these different positions are supported by various verses of Scripture. So that's why there's confusion. That's why the body of that's why the body of Christ is divided on the subject and always has been divided and probably always will be divided is because the Bible is not extremely clear. Now, I think, I think with sufficient study that it's clear. But again, there's others who think that with sufficient study, it's clear and come up with a different interpretation. What you have to do is decide for yourself. Now, I want to be clear too. I don't divide the body of Christ on these issues. In other words, if you take a different position on the rapture than what I do, I don't exclude you from the body of Christ, nor call you, uh, uh, nor, nor say that you're uninformed. Uh, I accept the fact that there are various views, and that that's fine. Now, why are there various views like that? Why isn't the Bible clear? If you think back, when Jesus came the first time, the disciples themselves, the scribes and the Pharisees, who were well taught in the Word of God, were not clear that when Messiah came, He would suffer and die. Now, there are passages of Scripture that we can go back to that clearly teach that Messiah would suffer, like Isaiah chapter 53, Psalm 22, Zechariah 12, 13. Many, many passages that speak of Messiah's suffering, even to the point that His hands and His feet would be pierced, that He would go down to the dust of death, Psalm 22. But even after the disciples had spent three years walking with Christ and hearing Him teach, when He said that He was going to be crucified, they said, what does that mean? When He said He was going to be raised from the dead, they said, what is He talking about? And so the scriptures were, were explicit, but the problem was that in the Bible itself, there were two different lines of scripture. One line of scripture spoke of Messiah coming and reigning gloriously, spoke of him triumphing over the nation, spoke of him setting up a kingdom that would last forever. And another patch, a group of scripture spoke of him suffering. And so those two different lines of scripture seemed to be not, not to be reconcilable. The problem was there was not a single passage of Scripture that attempted to reconcile those two different lines of thought. 
And so therefore it lent itself to two different extreme interpretations and continued to do so until Christ was actually raised from the dead. And then the disciples on the day of Pentecost had to continue to teach and explain that the Old Testament scripture had presented Christ as both a suffering Messiah and as a reigning Messiah. Now this is borne out in the Dead Sea Scrolls where the, uh, they dug up uh, some of the commentaries and writings of the ancients. And uh, there was a group there that actually thought there'd be three different messiahs. They thought there'd be one messiah who'd be a prophet, like unto Moses, as the scripture predicted. There'd be another messiah who'd be a priest, like Christ was in his suffering and his dying. And then the uh, messiah who'd be a king, a prophet, a priest, and a king. Because in fact, the scriptures represent Christ, the coming Christ in the Old Testament, in all three of those aspects, prophet, priest, and king. And uh, now that we have the full revelation of the New Testament, we can look back and see that Christ will, in the process of time, fulfill all of that. Now, another thing that the Jews were confused about and seemed to be a difficulty with them is if you remember when Jesus went back into heaven, the disciples said to him, Will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Because the Bible had predicted that God would bless the Jewish people and that he would raise them up and set up a kingdom through them. And yet here, here Christ had suffered, died, was about to ascend into heaven, and no kingdom was set up yet. Uh, John the Baptist had been preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came repeat, preaching for repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and yet they saw no kingdom. They saw the king crucified, and uh, they saw the king buried, and now he was leaving to go back to heaven. And so their question naturally was, are you going to set up your kingdom right now? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has in his will. So uh, we find that there's a pattern throughout Scripture that God is not as concerned about providing us with the details of the sequence of events prophetically as we are. See, we'd like to know exactly uh, how to recognize Antichrist. That's one of the questions we received when he comes. We'd like to know exactly when the second coming is going to occur. We'd like to know exactly about the tribulation and uh, the 144,000 and the millennial reign and the judgment seat and the great white throne and the judgment of the angels. And uh, there's so many things there that the Bible talks about and has uh, quite a bit of testimony about, but there's no attempt to chronologically lay those events out carefully and answer all our questions about it. So I, I must admit that no matter what our position is, when we begin to speak on these things, the chances are none of us are going to be perfectly right on it. The chances are none of us are going to have everything in its proper order and proper place and understand it in detail. Now that's not to say I'm not dogmatic about what I believe, that I haven't that I'm not clear on it. I've studied it. I'm clear on it. But uh, I have enough, um, enough forced humility to admit that I could be wrong. And uh, so we're going to look at some scripture on the subject to show you why we believe in a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial rapture of the church. We're going to look at what the Bible has to say about it. No way we can be thorough. Now let me say this too. The, the the best argument for the pre-tribulational rapture of the church is not found in a single verse, but found in the overall program of God as regards Jews and Gentiles, as regards the Jewish kingdom and the church. 
And so there's a broad perspective that takes us all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, takes us through the book of Daniel, through the prophets, and up through the uh, preaching of Christ and John the Baptist on the kingdom. If you would like to ask a Bible question, email us at biblequestions at nogreaterjoy.org or call at 931-805-4820.